You're listening to the Justin C. Gleason Podcast. Please press follow and become a loyal listener. Select a five-star rating and support by giving through Cash App, PayPal, or Venmo at Justin C. Gleason. Thank you for listening, sharing, and your generosity. Hello, Sister Rachel. Thank you for joining me. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited to be back. Rachel Aline Carpenter, she's the host of the Wicked or Wise and Side Notes with Rachel podcast, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcast. Be sure to visit wickedorwise.com for more information, content, and of course, merch. There's great shirts on there, hoodies, accessory bags, phone cases, water bottles, and of course, nice coffee mugs. Just earlier today, I bought a very cool coffee mug. It's the uh, Genesis 127 coffee mug. Really excited about it. It's got nice Hebrew on it, and it's the Hebrew word ish, which means man, right? Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, so... Uh, Scroll down and check out the episode notes for all of those details. Rachel, you did a great piece on what I thought was always Priscilla, but you say Priscilla. Is that right? Yeah, Priscilla. Um, I looked up several different variations of her name and went with the one that was easiest to remember to pronounce. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's something new. Blew my mind. So I actually like the way that sounds. Very uh, Greek, Priscilla. Mm-hmm. And you found out some great historical information about her, uh, very accurate information. And she was not a prominent woman in the beginning of her life, as we see in the Bible, but rather an outcast, right? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So she uh, kind of gets a sideline mentioned. So I honestly didn't expect to find out a whole lot about her. I mean, she does have a little story, of course, where she and her husband uh, pull Apollos aside and have a nice discussion with him on the accuracy of what he's teaching. But I was kind of surprised to find out how much history there was about her story, but especially the part about her and her husband being the outcasts of two different cultures of people, the first being Rome, because they were Jewish, Aquila, a Jewish by birth, and Priscilla, Jewish by marriage, and then also the outcasts of the Jews, because they were Roman, thanks to Priscilla. So they kind of were in this in-between spot where they would have been shunned by either social group, and they were expelled out of Rome, thanks to the emperor of the time who had a distaste and a distrust for Jews. And so they found themselves in the area that Paul was in and ministering and happened to meet him. But it was a pretty rocky start for them, that's for sure. Wow. See, you don't have to have a perfect life, come from the best setting and circumstances. But God finds people of all walks of life, including those who are banished for uh, political reasons, seeking Mm -hmm. political asylum and there they are in the bible and i think reading that hearing that a lot of people are going to relate to that even in a more deeper way after after hearing those details do you have any advice things you've seen and observed for people that maybe feel like an outcast right now maybe there's a a girl out there she's newly married and for whatever reason she had to leave her home everything fell apart her world fell apart she's in a new 
area? What do you, what would you say to somebody who feels like that? How to how to make it and actually uh, see some success in life for God? Yeah, I would say to be like Priscilla because one thing we do know about her, and actually the reason she's still recorded in Scripture is that. Everywhere she went, she opened the doors of her home, and she sent out invites, and churches were founded in her homes. Uh, She was moving around quite frequently, but a lot of churches were established in her home. And something I have had to learn in my own life, because I had a church transplant situation that happened a couple of years ago, um, is that if you want to succeed, you can succeed anywhere that God plants you, but that's entirely on you to do. You have to make the first step. Oftentimes, you have to be the one to reach out to make connections. And Priscilla might have been rejected and not invited into other people's homes, but she made her home for her a home her home a home for all of those who were outcasts. And she didn't let the fact that she was an outcast keep her from extending that hand of grace and compassion to others. So that's what I would advise is find someone in your circle, someone near you, and you can start small, start with one person, just walk up and say hi, shake a hand. That's all it takes, hi and a smile, and you'll be surprised the doors that that can open. But we also see that principle in Jesus. You know, he was also an outcast. He was a pariah to a lot of people because he was coming against the religious organization, the religious structure of the day. But he didn't wait for an invitation. He walked right in and opened his arms out and just said, you know, come here. I'm here to love you. And when all else fails, if you fake it, you will eventually make it. If you can believe that you have worth, <laughs> if you can believe that you can someday be that popular person, <laughs> and if you will learn, you know, study. It's, and the Bible tells us the person who has friends is someone who showed themselves friendly. You know, so study up on how to be a friendly person, and you'll be surprised how quickly your circle will grow. Ain't that the truth? Oh, that's great insight. Wow, it you know every church that I go to, even in my own church, the that 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 wife, that mother who always has the door open and coffee mm. going and coffee, cake, cookies, whatever, they're the most <laughs> favored people in the church and very influential. Yeah, it's a great way to turn it around. So you don't have to always be an outcast. Yeah, That's right. open your home. It's spiritual. It's what yeah. Jesus did. You know, he left uh, Nazareth, came down to Capernaum. And called out to fishermen, and it says in Matthew's gospel, they came and saw where he dwelt. That's mm-hmm. how he made disciples that first day, said, come to my house. Wow. Okay, yeah. and uh, a part of the Christmas story, but not just that, it's even wide range. I don't think the, the Bible writers, when they wrote the Christmas story, said, okay, this is only for uh, you know, <laughs> in December, but it's the story of the birth of Christ extends mm-hmm. all over Messianic prophecy. What do you think is the significance why Luke mentions she is from the tribe of Asher? So Asher was one of the lost tribes of Israel. After it fell apart post-Solomon's reign, there were a group of tribes that were lost, and by and large, they did not return back um, during the unifications that were trying to take place before the Roman Empire took over. And Asher was one of those tribes. It was a bunch of people who walked away from everything that they knew and they loved. But 2 Chronicles 36 tells us that there were a small group of Asherites who actually returned to Jerusalem. And they returned because they had contrite hearts and they had a desire to restore themselves to that kingdom of Israel. And what they did was they tore down idols and they started up the the Levitical practices once more. And it's believed that perhaps Anna's family 
are the distant descendants of that specific line of Asherites. So that's Mm. significant because it means that a lost tribe was gathered in and someone from that lost tribe got to be in attendance at the consecration of baby Jesus. And that is a huge statement because no matter how far anyone wanders, God's desire is for you to return home. And when you return home, he will not exclude you from the miraculous. And also she returned home to a church. She was in a temple. So she didn't try to, the the Asherites didn't just gather themselves outside of the religious places and say, you know what, we're back, we're dirty, we're downtrodden, we don't deserve to be rejoined to the church family. They came right in and said, we want to start it up again. And Anna was in the church of the day, the temple, when she got to experience the miraculous. Wow. Oh, Oh, that's something. Man. So Anna had a phenomenal prayer life and very disciplined in fasting. Any any insight on that part of her ministry? Yeah, so Luke tells us that she didn't leave the temple, but she stayed there worshiping with fasting and prayer every night and every day. So first to clarify for any of the naysayers, (laughs) that doesn't mean she literally never stopped fasting and never stopped praying. I mean... She lived to be a ripe old age, so she probably ate at some point during that lifetime. But it does mean that every ounce of who she was was consumed with desire for God, a desire that was so strong that things like food didn't satisfy her. And so she spent Mm -hmm. what started out as a few days in the temple, and then it became weeks, and then months, and then years, and then decades, until she was ripe old age, somewhere between the ages of 84 and 110. We don't know the exact age because it's not totally clear in scripture um, what the 84 years is referencing, but we do know that she spent a huge amount of time at the temple, but it didn't start out with the desire, like, I'm just going to be well, something of a nun, <laughs> but she started out just wanting to get closer to God, to heal hurts and wounds in her life when her husband passed and she didn't have children and she just drew Amen. closer to God. And in so doing, she found that nothing in this life can satisfy what the spirit can satisfy. And she was also a perfect example of what widows were meant to be. I mean, Paul probably based part of his admonition to the church on her in First Timothy 5, He talks about the widow program and how they take care of the widows. And he said, she who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. And Anna refused to be self-indulgent. She wanted to be God-indulgent. And so night and day, she continued in prayer and fasting. And God rewarded that ministry of praying and fasting with getting to participate in the consecration of baby Jesus. I mean, that is a huge honor. That is a massive honor. And it was her prayer and her fasting that opened her that door for her because God saw someone, you know, fasting, it, it, there's a lot of things that are accomplished with fasting, but one of the biggest things that's accomplished with fasting is a bold statement to God that I will deny this flesh to get closer to you. I'm willing to starve this flesh so that my spirit can draw closer to you. I'm willing to kill this carnal self so that I can be closer to you. And Anna was making that statement every single day. And so God said, all right, here I am. And he arrived on her doorstep as a baby. I mean, that's mind boggling. It sure is. Wow. Every church needs an Anna. 
Mm, yes. One of those little old ladies that know how to get a hold of God. We got some in our church. I'm thinking about them right now. Wow. So uh, what advice would you give to, it could be a young lady, middle-aged lady, older lady, anybody uh, who's listening to this and she's waiting on God to fulfill something in her life. What advice would you give to somebody who's just praying and waiting on that? I would first say that I empathize and that waiting can be agony. And sometimes it's harder than other times. But birthing anything new is a lengthy process that's filled with periodic agony. And so birthing your promise might take time and it might take travailing in the spirit and it might take hard work and you might feel the pain of that waiting, but your promise will come. It will come. Anna's promise took a lifetime, but it still came. She still got to see that baby Jesus. And so I would just say, do what Anna did. Draw as close to God as possible. Give up whatever it takes to give up so that your mind is stayed on Jesus. Because when your mind is stayed on Jesus, the waiting doesn't seem so long. You know, when we get to heaven, it's going to be an eternity with Christ. And I'm sure it's going to be millions of years before we even realize where we are because we're just going to be so in awe of the fact that we're standing in heaven yes. and Jesus is right in front of us, you know? And that same mindset can happen on earth. If you can get your mind stayed on Jesus, the time in between you and your promise can go by in the blink of an eye. And during that time, he fills the needs and he soothes the aches and he's your comforter and he's your companion. And actually, um, that just reminded me of what Sister G was saying in the last episode of how Jesus held her hand. He wants to be there with you. If you can let him in to that waiting process, he wants to be there waiting with you. He doesn't give promises as like a carrot on the end of a stick, right? He's not trying to tease you. But it's a promise because he's excited to give it to you, and he's excited to see your face as you wait in anticipation for that gift. So let him in. Draw as close as possible and let him in. Amen. Excellent. Uh, circling back to Anna praying and fasting, it's almost like when Paul says pray without ceasing. I, th- I think mm. a few years ago I figured out what that meant. It, it, and I've heard people say, I'm always praying in my spirit. Really, you, you are when you're chowing down at the buffet. Uh, when you're <laughs> <sl> <laughs> I, <laughs> I, so I've kind of, my interpretation of that is never break the habit of prayer. Mm. Pray, pray without ceasing. You, you see that or are you a uh, you pray when you're at the buffet? type person. <laughs> I'm not a pray at the buffet type person. Actually, I'm doing very well to remember to pray before I chow down on my meal. Um, I, it's something <laughs> I have to work at because I, I get so excited when I see the food. <laughs> I just want to dive yeah. in. Yeah. Oh man. But yeah, I think that that's, I think that that's actually a really profound way of looking at that. That's one that I have never okay. considered before, but that does make sense because prayer should be a habitual part of our lives. And so mm-hmm. you don't want to break the habit because once you break the habit, it is really hard to rebuild that. Mm-hmm. That makes sense to me. Yeah, praying and fasting was her lifestyle, and mm-hmm. wow, amazing. Bathsheba is a, I think, a difficult character to teach and preach. Uh, you covered her very well, especially the latter a part of her life. But you said something that really caught my attention in talking about David Bathsheba's first child that passed away. And I know this is a sensitive subject can even bring up, you know, 
not so pleasant memories and experiences for some people. And we all have been there. We all know somebody that's there. But you said something about David when he was interceding and uh, just in complete agony for the life of his child. But after the child passed, because all souls belong to the Lord, and of course that child is in heaven to this day. Mm-hmm. You said something. He didn't complain when the child died because, as it were, in his spirit he felt I didn't deserve healing. I didn't deserve a miracle, really, because of my actions. I I deserve this. And do you have any advice from that story, that segment, from somebody who has sinned bad? I mean bad, real bad. And they're suffering consequences, and they've just had to move forward. And you look at David's life, the Lord blessed him mm-hmm. after that. Do you think David's attitude... And just after that, arising and, and, and eating and washing his face and anointing himself, that type of attitude and approach with God actually blessed him. And do you think that that type of scenario is happening to this day for people? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm not going to say that child loss is the result of sin. So just to clarify that, because I just want to make sure to when I'm talking about David and Bathsheba and everything I'm about sure. to say is within the context of David and Bathsheba's story. <laughs> um But David, I mean, God spoke directly to David through the prophet Nathan and told him why this was happening and told David it was because of David's sin that this was going to happen. So, I mean, this is the one time that I can think of that we, we know for sure that the child loss was the result, the direct result of the sin. And I absolutely think that David's response of praying and seeking God's grace on the situation and then accepting God's refusal is what allowed David to walk forward in favor. You know, um, the scripture tells us repeatedly, but especially in James chapter four, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God is repulsed by unrepentant hearts because unrepentant hearts are full of pride. They say, I know better. I know better than God. And he's repulsed by that. But to acknowledge that your sin is real That's so humble. That is a humbling process because you have to literally say you failed. And I mean, I like to think of it if if you're a parent. I mean, I'm not a parent, but I've been a nanny in the past, so I've definitely lived this to some extent. But if you're a parent and your kid does something really stupid and you're really mad at that kid and then he comes to you or she comes to you and just sasses you and tells you, oh, I didn't do anything wrong. You're overreacting. I mean, what is your response going to (laughs) be? greater punishment. You're going to want to crack the whip harder, right? But if the kid comes to you saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, and is truly remorseful for what they've done, you feel nothing but compassion and a desire to just make it all right again. And God feels mm-hmm. the same way about his children. When his children don't come to him saying like, oh, I can, this is fine, you know, just because your word says it doesn't mean anything. But instead they come to him and they say, you're right, God, I have failed and I am truly sorry. God is eager to extend grace to that spirit of humility. And my dad always told me that you can tell if a person is truly repentant by whether or not they're willing to accept the consequences of their sin. And that's so true because that willingness to accept the consequence of sin means that you truly have acknowledged that it was sin indeed because sin deserves consequence. But God doesn't always enforce those consequences. Sometimes he extends grace And in David's case, unfortunately, the sin was so great that God was not going to extend grace on the full matter. He extended grace in other ways. He allowed David to see his son get on the throne. So he extended some grace, but he, he didn't extend the grace to the child that had to die as a cost of that sin. 
But what I would say, you you mentioned what advice can be given to someone who's trying to move forward from a dramatic error. I would say do what David did. Repent to God, pay your dues, repent to those that your sin has hurt, and then let it go. And that's a lot easier said than done. But the enemy wants nothing more than for you to live stuck in the rut of that mistake. And God wants nothing more than for you to move on, to prosper, and to thrive. So don't let the enemy hold you there. Choose to move on. When the thoughts arise, plead the blood over it. Remind yourself the blood has already been applied. The consequence has already been paid. Christ died. So you don't have to die. You can move forward with your life and be grateful and accept his grace. And honestly, rejection of grace is just another form of pride. You're saying you know better than God if you say God's grace cannot cover your sin. Mm. So don't let the enemy win that way. Don't give him that victory. Mm. Mm, profound. You say that. Let me get. Uh, make sure I got this right. You said that a part of repentance is willingly accepting the consequences of your sin. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh, that's good. We've all been there. Yes. Oh wow. <laughs> me more than most. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sometimes you got to have consequences. It's you know you're forgiven. Yeah. It's there. You, your name is written in heaven, but you're going to have consequences. What you sow is what you reap sometimes in life. Mm-hmm. And if you will pay the price, as it were, endure those things, you'll come out of it strong. Yeah. Well, that's how it works. And you look at the life of David That's and Bathsheba, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. And it's not just their story, but so many other stories. Wow. Uh, you did a great piece also on Rahab. Um, do you see any types and shadows of Rahab in the New Testament church? You know, she was Gentile and was brought into uh, the brought into Israel, the church in the wilderness, right? Of Hebrews called it. Uh, have you seen this type of situation happen where sinners welcome? Uh, God's people into their home, and their home is blessed for it, and they uh, end up you know, having just a phenomenal life simply because they open their door to uh, what could be a Bible study or friendship or something. You think there's Rahabs that exist out there today that say, you know, I don't understand it all, but I've heard of you people, and you people are powerful and great, and Whoever you are, whatever you are, I fear your God more than I do the God of my family. Because Rahab was a, a, a wicked woman. Mm, <laughs> she was mm-hmm. not on the wise side. So true. <laughs> a, 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 a wicked woman, you know. You know I've, I've seen the ruins of Jericho. They had they did horrible rituals. for They worshipped their walls, and they did horrible things for the walls. And she was probably some type of ritual prostitute, mm. right? So yeah, have you have you seen it happen where even the most wicked of sinners they welcome Christianity Christians into their home, and they're blessed for it? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of a specific example. Um, one is coming to mind right off the hand, but it wasn't their home. Um, there was a man I knew who he actually didn't want to be a Christian because he uh, he went to the Vatican actually, and he saw the expenses that went into it, and he saw the poor people standing outside the walls, and he was turned off on religion because of that. And um, he used to say, you know, I'm just going to live by the golden rule. I'll do unto others, you know. 
as I would want it to be done to me. And then he used to say, I assume that if I treat God's people well, God will treat me well in the end. (laughs) And uh, he would look for opportunities to hire Christians and his business prospered greatly. I mean, he started a business, uh, it was like, mm, I want to say 30 years ago is when he started it. And it is now a many million dollar business, like many millions. And I truly believe that that is in large part because of the favor that he showed Christians. And it was kind of funny because he was a man with a um, quite a temper, to put it nicely and mildly. <laughs> and he would walk around office to office yelling at people. But whenever he would get to a Christian store, he would zip his lips and just smile and say, have a great day. <laughs> And he blessed a lot of lives that way. I mean, he funded, whether he was aware of it or not, he funded a lot of ministries. And uh, yeah, so I guess I see a little bit of that Rahab principle in him and his life. Um, He's passed on now, but he was quite the wild character. I mean, truly a wild character, like drinking, smoking pot in his office. And yet he extended so much favor to those he knew served God, even though he Mm. wanted nothing to do with God. It was, it was a weird, weird dynamic, that's for sure. But I will say, too, the other thing, the thing that I see most in Rahab's story, as far as like a foreshadowance of the New Testament church, is Rahab's actions, that she didn't accept just belief in an unknown God, but she wanted to do something to serve him. And I wish I had an example of that in modern times, but I don't, unfortunately. Nothing's coming to mind anyway. I'm sure there is one that I just don't know of, but... She uh, she didn't want to just stop at belief. She wanted to act, and it is her story that's used as admonition for the church in the book of James to make sure that you don't let your faith fall in want of works. And in the same paragraph where James says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. He uses her story to show why you can't just believe in it be enough. You also have to obey the commands of God and live them out. And because she obeyed the commands of God and lived them out, she actually was known to the day of the person who wrote her story um, as the lady down the street who still lived in Israel, who still partook in, in the things of Israel. And I think that's an amazing principle because we can look at her life and look at our own lives and see, okay, where has God commanded me to act where, where has God commanded me to move forward or to put something in my window, something to hold on to, that I'm, I'm lacking that extra step of faith? And then we can do it, and then we can actually see the fruition of that faith. Because as James said, the enemy can see your faith, and he's not scared unless you—or he can see your belief. He's not scared unless you also act. And that faith is the combination of belief and action. And that's what Rahab was. She was yeah. belief and action, and that's the New Testament church, if it's anything. The church, New Testament church is belief in action. Mm. Wow. Yeah, the spies picked the probably the most wicked woman mm-hmm. <laughs> there on sure the did. wall. <laughs> yeah. Well, God often, you know, God can use anybody. You've done, you've t- talked about God even used Balaam's donkey, which was a, f- a female, by the way, right? Yes. <laughs> She sure you got was. Some cool, uh, <laughs> and you got some cool Balaam's donkey merch, <laughs> by the way. 
you know, God um, has used unusual circumstances in many places, in many ways, like Elijah having to go to the the, uh, the little creek, the brook, and he's fed by an unclean bird, a raven. Mm, yeah. And then he's sent and taken care of by a widow. Mm-hmm. You know, typically widows of a, of a very low status, you know, back then. Mm-hmm. Barely getting by. And God said, that's where you're going to get taken care of. And for the spies to come into the land, they were taken care of by a prostitute, a type of woman and a ritual prostitute, a type of woman uh, that they were uh, commanded to kill. Mm -hmm. And God looked past all of that and blessed her simply because she welcomed them into her home. And and here we, here we go. We're bringing, it's like a Priscilla situation. You open your home Mm -hmm. uh, to serving and to showing hospitality, you, you're going to start attracting the favor of the Lord. Yes. Uh, in your life. And I think too, she was looking for opportunity. I think I, I've talked about it in that episode, but yeah. um, where she hid them was proof that she was looking for a way out to me anyway. I mean, some could say I'm reading into it, but she was in the process of making material that could be used to make and sell clothing. And I think that that's indicative that she had a desire to get out. And God says that he draws near to a broken, contrite spirit. He draws near to people who are broken by their circumstance and who want to heal and recover and move on with their life. And I think God saw Rahab, you know, preparing for a way out, and he found a way to get her out quicker. Mm. Yes, you did. That was excellent. Yeah, it started with her. She said, I've had enough of this life. There's got to be something better. And it's probably those feelings and thoughts that God probably, with his hand, guided those spies right to where she was at. Yeah. Yeah. Goodness gracious. Yeah, because, I mean, someone who is purely evil doesn't welcome good into their home. Hmm. That was a thought. Yeah. Yeah. Rachel, I get responses from listeners, from guys and girls who are saying exactly what you have said. They feel like they are stuck. Mm. Like they, they say, I just, I don't know how I just can't stop. Uh, one of them is, uh, a fear, always afraid. You know, and, and it's not just a suspicion or just, you know, everybody walking from their job at night back to their cars, af- you know, afraid of what could happen. You know, <laughs> I take precautions, you know, and yeah. situation, you know, but, but I just uh, live in, live in f- constant fear. Some people live in constant anger. Mm. Uh, some people have addictions they can't shake and they just are tired of it and they feel like they are stuck. Yeah. Do you have any advice? What's, what's that small baby step they can do? to get into the right direction of getting out, getting unstuck, like Rahab did? I would say anoint your door frames. I know that sounds old-fashioned, but it's something that has always helped me when I'm trying to break through. I get out the olive oil, and I literally smear it on my door frames, every entrance and exit to my home. And I pray over my door, and I ask God to protect my home and create in it a safe environment, an environment that my spirit can thrive in that is not thwarted, attacked, or intimidated by evil. And I have found that when I do that, breakthroughs happen. And it's a small action and it's a physical action that you can do. It's something that you can literally right now do. You can grab your olive oil 
and wipe it on your doorframe and just plead mm. the blood over your home because your home needs to be a safe place for you. And if you don't have that safe place, it's easy for the enemy to get in and to consume you with that that fear, that addiction, that chain, that bondage. Jesus. But if you will anoint the doorframe to your home, he cannot pass that threshold. And every time you walk into your home, you will find freedom. Well, doorposts are, there's few things in this world, in this life that actually the spirit world recognizes. Yeah. I don't think they, they, I don't think they really care about what pen you use, what notebook you use, what your phone is doing, things like that. But that's interesting because, and I'm looking at a, at a two open doors next to me right now. It's kind of, <laughs> kind of funny. Mm-hmm. I'm looking in, in here. I got the office studio here, and I'm looking over at a ton of storage and st- stuff. It's funny, but <laughs> I'm looking at these doorposts, and I remember anointing them when I first bought this house, and it it was a powerful experience. You know, mm-hmm. as nobody ever usually people don't anoint their ceilings or their carpets. It's always the doorposts, yeah, or the the entrance and. I don't know why that is. I think somehow the Holy Ghost inside of us knows that. Yeah, they put the um, mezuzahs on their doorposts. Yes, yes. Uh, their entrances. Uh, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, the doorposts uh, shook. Mm-hmm. And I know. I know we're kind of going off script here, but there is a uh, the spirit world recognizes your doorposts. It does, and and. Yeah, you start doing that stuff, you will kick the demons out and angels will start living in the house with you. Yeah, and the angels you want, not the angels seeking to destroy that which they see participating in evil. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was the blood on the doorpost that kept the angel of death from seeking out the Israelites. And uh, sometimes when we are steeped in wickedness, we can feel like even heaven is against us. If you want that to stop and you want to feel liberty and you want to feel the the spirit of God fighting for you, that can help. I mean, there is something mm. definitely powerful to the doorpost. It's what you let into your home. It's a physical representation of what you let into your life. Yeah, it's it's a chain-breaking moment. I actually, I was just thinking about this time um, where I was feeling a ton of fear. I had actually just had a demonic interaction where, um, yeah, I was, uh, I know about those. (laughs) Oh gosh, they are rough. I was at a church and, um, we had just baptized some people and a woman walked in off the street and she was definitely dealing with demonic spirits and we tried to help her, but she resisted our help. She ended up leaving, but she had touched some towels that we had used after the baptisms and I needed to wash them. But the whole way home, I had this feeling, this sick feeling in my gut, this feeling of fear washed over me, this feeling that there was something with me in that car. And I remember when I pulled in, I was about to bring in the towels and God told me, stop, anoint your doorframe. And so I left the towels in my car. I went inside, grabbed the oil, anointed my doorframe, prayed in tongues for five to 10 minutes. I mean, I'm not sure exactly how long, but there was some shouting going down in my house. And then he released me and I went out and I got the towels and I brought them in and I washed them and I took them back to the church and there was no problem. But I believe had I not listened to that unction of the spirit, something would have been led into my house that day, but it broke it. And I remember feeling immediate relief in the spirit, immediate freedom in the spirit when I anointed those door frames. 
before I even got to the point of praying, just spreading the oil was a statement. You are not welcome here. It, it seems silly, I'm sure, to people that have never done it. Yeah. But when it comes to spiritual things, you try it mm-hmm. and uh, it works. Wow. What a story. Oh, that's great insight. I love that. That's apostolic New Testament church. Yes. You know, getting back to prayer. You don't have to put up with it. You don't have to live with it. You can have liberty in your own home. May yes. not have to, may not get it everywhere else, but <laughs> yeah, our home should be a, a, a place of prayer. Wow, I feel inspired to do that uh, all over again. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Uh, Herodias, another uh, a wicked woman who remained wicked, died wicked, is wicked, forever will mm-hmm. be wicked. You know, she instigated that whole thing with uh, her daughter. And, and the husband, which was an unlawful marriage, uh, by the way. Yes. And uh, do you see uh, the same pattern happening here with John? He, you know, calls out their marriage that this is not lawful. Because, you know, he married her thinking, you know, I'm doing this all by the law of Moses, so the Jews have to accept me. You know, cause, but basically he told his brother, I think it was, um, oh, I've, I, my mind just went blank on the Herodian family. You know, it was I another Herod. <laughs> <laughs> I should know this. Goodness, you know everybody knows. No. <laughs> but it just, was his if you brother. just say Herod, you've got it right. There's yeah, a bunch Herod, of Herods. Yeah. Herod Phil, married Philip, Herod's wife. <laughs> yeah, Philip, Archelaus, all of them. But he, yes, the Herod. It was the one in the northwest. Said to the one mm-hmm. in the east. He said, "I want your wife, and if you don't divorce her and give her to me, I'm going to kill you." And. You know, the the weak brother said, okay, sure, here she goes. And so he set it all up to make it look as if it was completely lawful, completely legal, nothing wrong in the law of Moses. And that went on a lot, especially with the Pharisees and Sadducees. They would, you know, manipulate the law to end a marriage mm-hmm. for somebody else. Do you, and, and it was called out by John. None... You know, do you see that kind of ha- happening today? We We say what you are doing is not of God, and we get uh, silenced and canceled kind of the same way. But you see that same thing kind of happening today. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, evil does not want it, its name to be called out clearly. And John was imprisoned and eventually beheaded because he was willing to call out evil for what it was. Evil likes to operate under cover of night. It, it likes to operate without people being aware it's operating. Um, mm-hmm. But that truth is what sets people free. So yeah. you got to be willing to risk it. But yeah, okay. I see that. And I, I'm, and I really didn't ask that very good working off script here. But I guess what I'm saying is, you know, we don't just go up to anybody and start judging their marriage at all. Right. That's not your place. Yeah, that's really God gives that to to pastors, to spiritual authorities, leaders, civil authorities, all of that. But well, I guess what I'm saying is when people try to pass off their decisions as, you know, I can lawfully do this when they manipulated the law of mm. God. And uh, I don't know. I've just, uh, I'm seeing that here and there a little bit here and there. The manipulation of the law to get what they want to appear uh, to look holy. And that was what John judged and what Jesus judged. Yeah. You know, it's this, uh, you can't be wicked and wise at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So true. Yeah. Yeah. So 
Well, yeah, I see it. You see it. We're seeing more of it. And, um, you know, did, did John have to call him out? No. <laughs> he didn't have to, but he did. And, and that's what uh, happened. He decreased. Mm-hmm. You know, he fulfilled his purpose, and he's in heaven with a great reward to this day. But, okay, so Herodias instigated the whole, really the whole thing. And I don't think Herod really wanted to kill John, but he had to do something, you know, to protect his marriage. And uh, she's the one that asked the daughter to dance and get the the head on the platter and all that. And, you know, it's bad enough to have peer pressure in school. And we're worried about now what peers are saying to the kids in the youth group. And now even more worried about uh, heaven's sake for, you know, heaven only knows what the teachers are teaching the kids nowadays. Mm. And also for kids that don't have parents that serve the Lord, they come on their own. We're worried what the parents are teaching them, even church families, what the parents are teaching them. And what would you say to the girl out there who feels like her mom is not a good influence (laughs) and the dad is not a good influence and maybe the aunt is not a good influence and, you know, she feels called to be holier than the mom. You know, and she's got to honor the mom, obviously, get along with the mom, living under mom's roof. But uh, what would you say to somebody when the time is right, how to, how to break away from that and get free from that? Yeah, well, I would say the best way to honor someone is to live so that your lifestyle reflects well on them. And so the best thing that someone can do to avoid the negative influence of their parents and honor them at the same time is to live as holy a lifestyle as possible. And I, I understand that that is much easier said than done when you're stuck in the environment and you're stuck with them speaking things into your life that you don't want spoken into your life. I definitely understand that. I have a personal experience with something similar where someone in my family, very near and dear to my heart, left the faith and after leaving, tried to draw me into their sinful lifestyle. And it was hard to shut the door on that. But I did have to get to a point where I drew a line in the sand and I said, I'm not crossing this. If you want to live over there, that is your choice. I will not go there with you. Hmm. You might not be able to physically leave behind someone who is, for lack of a better term, a Herodian mother, (laughs) but you can create a bubble of safety for yourself. So first I would say fast and pray and seek counsel, seek godly counsel find your pastor and ask him for help. And then I would say, if you have access, do a prayer walk through their house. You have the authority to bind the evil and to loose the good there. Anoint her Mm. door frames with oil. Plead the blood of Christ over her house. You might be surprised how much change you can affect in her without ever saying a word to her, just by fighting in the spiritual realm. Because I mean, that's what Paul tells us, right? We're not up against flesh and blood. We're up against spiritual wickedness in high places. And what we're seeing in the carnal world is just a reflection of what's been going on in the spiritual world long before. And set Mm. firm boundaries in your life. Choose where your lines are. Hold them up to scripture. Look in his word. See where things become sin and refuse to even go near the line, even if they draw you. And that is truly the best way that you can honor them is by living a life that reflects well on them, even if they're not worthy of it. You know, if people look at you and say, wow, your parents did a great job raising you, then you have done your job. You have done your job. But don't let them speak wickedness into your life. It's okay to say under your breath, I reject that. I rebuke that. 
I mean, don't say it loud enough for them to hear, but if someone's trying to speak stuff into your life, you're allowed to pray quietly. I won't receive that. You're allowed. Yeah. Yeah, that's not breaking the law of God. It's not. I don't, wow, because you serve a, a greater authority, and that is the, the Father in heaven, but you always want to keep the peace and, and honor. Yes. Honor your parents. Always yes. never dishonor them, never embarrass them, never shame them, Absolutely. but always honor them. For If it wasn't for them, you wouldn't have existence, wouldn't have life. That's true. So, yeah, but when it comes to spiritual things, yeah, that's good advice. Seek counsel and every situation is different, but you can break away from it. The blood of Jesus mm-hmm. uh, can make that happen. So uh, Eve, the first lady, <laughs> she was um, deceived. You know, she looked and saw that the tree was good for food, desirable to make one wise. And it's like the serpent reached into her intellect and her emotions and things like that uh, to cause her to question what God had said. And, and Satan's still doing that to this day. You know, did oh, God yeah. really say that? Does the, is the word of God, you know, that, you know, a lot of things that you've based a lot of your content on with Eve. Do you still see Satan doing the same thing? Now, we don't have the tree of knowledge of good and evil with us to this day. Who knows where it is or what it is. But do you see Satan still trying to get people to blend good and evil together and live with it together? You know, merge light and darkness like the old yin yang. Mm. Uh, still trying to bring in uh, the world and what is godly and mix it together in one. You know, to try to be a hypocrite. Your your, your spirituality is only an act. Do you s- see that happening right now? Is that still a a temptation? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's something that's been a temptation to the church since the beginning. Paul said it pretty well when he said the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. They're contrary one to the other. So you can't do the things that you want to do. It's so true. And there is definitely a spirit trying to operate in the church disguising evil as good. And Mm -hmm. it's an enticing spirit because it's generally easier to buy into that than it is to buy into the truth. The truth is living for God requires a lot of sacrifice. It requires picking up a cross. And this enticing spirit is saying, well, you don't have to carry the big cross. You can carry a small one around your neck on a chain. You know, you don't need to actually carry a giant physical cross. Like you can just carry a little thing. And the lines between the world and the separate church are getting blurred. Mm. And it's, it's definitely happening. I especially see it happening amongst hyphen-aged people. And it's something that distresses my spirit. It's something that I pray about quite a bit because I see so many people who just, they want more than what God is allowing them to have right now. And they're not willing to bend their will to his timing. And so they look for opportunity in scripture to give them a way out. And they're resting Mm. scripture. It's not truth that they're seeking. They're seeking, they're seeking an ease of their burdens. And God warns us very, very clearly in Romans that people who trust in their own knowledge, who do not trust what the word says itself, but trust in their knowledge, their interpretation 
of that word. He gives them over to the lust of their flesh. And that spirit of Mm. deception is very much alive and very much trying to wipe out a whole generation of believers. Mm. You can, it's the Satan's lie. You can have both the world and the, and the truth. Yes. That's, that's the desire. Easy Christianity. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, wickedness is wickedness, but I think God hates those who seek good and evil to blend them together the most. Yes. Revelation, uh, what happens to the lukewarm Mm. uh, spewed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Coming back, you uh, mentioned those who want more. I I did some pieces on that uh, last year. Uh, People, uh, you know, Jesus talked about the the parable of the wedding feast. The guy who walked in and said, I'm going to sit in the greatest seat. Mm -hmm. And he did. And then he was brought down. (laughs) And God said to his followers, don't you do that. You sit in the lowest (laughs) seat and wait. Yeah. To be promoted, right? Mm -hmm. And because I think a lot of the reason that it is that way is because what did Satan want to do? Did he wait to be promoted? Or did he say, I want to go up higher and I want greater? Yeah. (laughs) So, So uh, yeah. Yeah, that ambitious spirit is not the way of the Lord, you know, to be you know, force somebody to to use you, to force somebody to include you, to force somebody... (laughs) Yeah. You know, to uplift you. But in all reality, we should be seeking the favor of the Lord. Right? Yes. And that comes through righteousness. Amen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you did some great stuff on, on Esther. Uh, you brought her story, all that, in into a way, way that I'd never seen before. And you brought up a really interesting theory on why Mordecai did not bow to Haman. I know. Around Kansas City, we say Haman. <laughs> in the Hebrew, Haman. Trying mm-hmm. to use those biblical names. Uh, what's your theory on that? Why didn't he bow to Haman? Yeah, so scripture is only clear that it was because Mordecai was a Jew that he wouldn't bow to Haman. That's the only thing scripture gives us. Um, and we know that because that is the reason that the servants give to Haman when they tell him, hey, by the way, have you noticed Mordecai's not bowing? And uh, Haman is incensed by this. And there's a lot of theory out there, but the one that struck me the most is there is a Talmudic legend that has the idea that Haman actually had false gods, the Persian gods, embroidered into the hems of his robes. So anyone who was bowing to him was bowing to his false gods. So if that's the case, Mordecai as a Jew would not have been able to bow because that would have been worshiping the false gods, that would have been a sign of reverence to a God that was not Yahweh, that was not the God Jehovah. And he wouldn't have been able to do that. Um, so that is the theory that has struck me the most on that. And I think it makes sense too, because um, his being a Jew was, a, I believe, a legal excuse for why he didn't have to bow to Haman, even though there was a decree issued. Because if if something could have been done about Mordecai not bowing, I think it's pretty obvious based on Haman's vendetta that he would have done it to force him to bow, right? If there was a legal course he had to be able to make Mordecai bow, he would have followed through on that, but he didn't have one um, because Mordecai cited Jewish beliefs for why he couldn't bow. And I personally believe too that that, this is an extension of my theory, um, that that is just a result of the precedent that was set by Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They worshiped Yahweh and Mm. were saved. And so the kings that came before the king reigning 
King Xerxes the first, well, Ahasuerus, I believe it was King Xerxes the first. The kings who came before him were well aware of the God of the Jews, and they paid deference to the God of the Jews. And so I believe there was legal precedent established that did not allow Haman to move forward legally to stop Mordecai from his behavior. And that would be a pretty obvious way for um, Mordecai to claim that if, there, if false gods were sewn into the hems of Haman's robes. Mm. Oh, wow, man. That, that puts it into so much perspective. Oh, mm. that's good. Yeah, you definitely see the influence there of the three Hebrew boys. Excellent. Yes. And you uh, brought out some really great details, very accurate history about Esther after you know the Bible story of her saving her people, preserving uh, the Jewish people. Uh, she started out very wise, but it sort of went wicked. <laughs> <laughs> first of all, uh, can you give a, a description of uh, what she did, and why do you think it came to that? Yeah, so she got bloodthirsty at the end, and we don't like to talk about that part of Esther's character because we like to think of her as the woman who called a nationwide fast, and she was that woman, but she was also a woman who acted with a great deal of vengeance to the point that after the streets were bathed in the blood of her enemies, the king asks her, what do you want now? And she says, let's do it again in the morning. Um, and it wasn't enough for Haman and his sons to be dead. She wanted them strung up in the streets. She wanted them, their corpses paraded around. I think women are very, we're mama bears, you know, God put it in every woman to be a mama bear. And when you see the people that you love and you care for attacked to the degree Esther saw, they were to be wiped off the face of the earth. They were to be annihilated. I think she acted with the kind of vengeance a mama bear acts with. And it definitely got bloody towards the end. So that's the setting <laughs> of what happened. Sure. Well, I don't, I mean, I'm not going to presume to know the mind of God, but God does say vengeance is his. And he kind of set the way for the first war to unfold, the first battle to unfold. Um, mm -hmm. but the extra one seems to have been all Esther's idea because the extra one wasn't necessary to save the Jews. So I think kind of, she's the, the David of the Bible, the female David of the Bible. She just went a little too far with it. Vengeance can destroy somebody. It's almost like a mafia hit. Yeah. You know, making a big statements and, uh, trying to strike fear, I guess, into the enemy. And yeah, I'm not so sure that exactly pleased the Lord. Yeah. You know, although maybe they deserved it, but, uh, you know, blessed are the merciful, right? Right. Yeah. I think that's the how, how all that goes. But uh, I, I've been, uh, I wrote something down a few years ago in one of my journals, and it's just kind of stuck with me. And it's the statement that the greatest revenge is successful living. It's the greatest revenge you're going to have, that you can have, that you can do. How does yes. that statement hit you? Yeah, I think that's powerful. And I think, honestly, the Jews did that because mm -hmm. at the end of Esther's story, it was the very next chapter of the Jewish history where they returned to their homeland and began to rebuild. Oh, wow. So their success mm. was their vengeance. Esther got it. It carried Esther away, but the Jews as a whole 
Yeah, they lived out their success. And that was in spite of what the Persians thought. Because <laughs> there was definitely some kickback on that. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think that that's a powerful statement. I really like that. So yeah, I've I've been uh, trying to do that. And I've been enjoying it. <laughs> so far it's working out for me. Yeah. Because yeah, you put your the vengeance in the hand of the Lord. You know, yes. and something I've learned is... You don't hate your enemies because that's that's how God feels. He doesn't hate his enemies. Right. And another thing I've found, hating your enemies actually hinders you. It mm. can really uh, obstruct your judgment. It really affects the way you think about decisions. Hatred, you, you don't think straight. That makes me think of um, Zipporah's story with Miriam and Aaron and the way they were talking mm. badly about her and her husband, Moses. And as you said, vengeance is in the hands of God. And when God heard Miriam and Aaron speak evil against Moses and Zipporah, God called them out in front of all of Israel. And he confronted them with it. And Moses had no hate for them, no anger, but he begged God to be merciful to them, even though he was the victim. Mm. And God yeah. still carried out justice against Miriam. So she was probably doing most of the talking. <laughs> but, sure uh, but at the same time, he did not exact the full vengeance he wanted to exact because Moses' heart for his brother and his sister one got over. And I think hmm. all of us, if we're honest, can say we have been guilty at some time or other of acting in such a way as to deserve God's vengeance. And we can only hope that our enemies would seek God's grace for us. And so we should extend that same grace to others. Amen. Wow. And that's something God, you know, Moses did that several times mm -hmm. for the people of Israel. He stood between them and God's wrath. Yes. And God listened to him. And that even happened uh, with Samuel. Mm. A, few other, a few other prophets, they stood in front of the wrath of God. Wow. Yeah. You know, a friend of mine was um, preaching a sermon and he, he covered the story of Moses. And he said that Moses's stubbornness, his initial reluctance to go to Egypt was a sign to God that he would be stubborn enough to withstand Pharaoh. And I was thinking too, that that stubbornness was a sign to God that Moses would stand before God and ask God to change his mind. Because the gumption it takes for someone to ask God to change his mind, that's a, that takes a lot of strength. And he did that mm -hmm. for Israel. And had he not done that, Israel, it would have been wiped out. I think Thomas said it in the Zipporah episode, but Israel would have been wiped out and started over with Moses and Zipporah. I mean, they would have gone down in fame, but Moses didn't care a lick about himself. He used the strength God put in him to stand for the people of Israel. And God admired that and foresaw his need for someone to remind him of his his love for Israel and his stamp on Israel's existence in his wrath. And so he picked someone who was willing to say, hey, God, can we rethink this? I think that's amazing. It sure is. That's why he's called probably the most humble man that ever lived. So meek. So meek. And I, it's, it's hitting me now. It's because most people would say, yep, kill him, God. And, mm. uh, let me see it. Let me watch. And they just... You know, have no problem with God judging the wicked, but 
a true prophet knows that judgment is eternal. Yeah. And knows that the 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 wrath of God is so extreme, but to foresee grace and to have the spirit of Messiah, which Moses had, foresaw Messiah, and to say, God, give him another chance. Yeah. <laughs> that just pleases the Lord. That's that's the prayer to pray. Love your enemies. It's not just a New Testament thing. It was it was back there in the Old Testament. They had it. Yeah. People did it. Absolutely. The spirit of Amen. anguish is in every prophet's book. That anguish yes. over what is coming for Israel if they don't change their ways. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Wisdom forgives. Mm-hmm. Wisdom lets go. Wisdom doesn't always have to be best friends with everybody, but it does <laughs> uh, try to live peaceably. And uh, we're, we're trying to seek a peace. And you are... Um, I want get, to get over now into side notes. Uh, Rachel, just when I thought you would uh, slow podcasting down, you opened up a brand new show <laughs> called Side Notes, and uh, I like it. I think it's uh, something that people are going to enjoy, be really excited about, and, and a lot to glean from. And uh, a lot of it, uh, you, uh, it's it's really, um, I guess, unscripted. You even said it's like random chatter. Yeah. And that's the way <laughs> most people talk. So uh, I think people are excited about it. And it was great to be a, a guest on uh, your most re- recent episode about cancel culture. Really enjoyed that conversation. And you did a piece on there. You brought in your mother and your stepdad. And you guys talked about divorce, remarriage, all of that. And uh, a great episode. I think a lot of people can relate to it. And even if you can't, it's good to to have that perspective of people that have been through that. I learned, you know, things that I never never knew before, and it mm. really helped me understand people that have uh, been through it and and come out and prevail, you know, over a dark season of life. And I just want to say this: God says, "I hate divorce." And you mm-hmm. know what? I don't know anybody who who doesn't hate divorce, right? <laughs> Even people have been divorced. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so uh, let, we'll put that out there. So, uh, uh, first things first: is divorce and remarriage the unforgivable sin? Well, first, thank you so much for your kind words. I really, really appreciate that. Um, I'm excited about side notes, and uh, honestly, you're a pioneer in the Pentecostal podcasting front. So it means the world to me to have someone like you say that. So thank you. Um, is divorce and remarriage the unforgivable sin? No, it's not. It's not. There's only thank one you. unforgivable sin, Amen. and that's blaspheming the Holy Ghost. And Jesus told us twice it's the only one. So that's in Matthew 12. Divorce is not the only unforgivable sin. It definitely, like you said, it grieves God. God hates it. He despises it. Um, but it also grieves people who endure it. It's most people who are going through divorce, I would say probably 90 plus percent of them are devastated to be going through divorce. And divorce is not mm-hmm. always a choice. And therefore, it cannot always be even sin. You know, sin is a conscience, a conscious rebellion against God. And sometimes you don't have the choice in divorce. That was something I had to learn by my parents going through it because one of them wanted it and the other one fought everything to avoid it. So it's not a waste choice. Sure. 
No. Yeah. Well, thanks for clearing that because you know there are people out there that have the conviction that it is unforgivable. Yes, <laughs> I have relatives who and, believe that. <laughs> yeah, and and you know I've known a lot of old preachers that preached it real hard, but then all of a sudden one of their grandkids gets divorced and remarried mm-hmm. and has grandkids, and all of a sudden, oh wow, this remarriage is such a beautiful thing, <laughs> and <laughs> <I> think- they change. <laughs> It takes living through it to understand it sometimes. <laughs> yeah, of course. Oh, man. Yeah. So, well, there. I guess it's people out there, they, they think the only way to have a divorce-free church is to just say never, no divorce. Mm-hmm. And that's just not going to happen, especially with our culture. Right. Uh, nowadays, I read a, a deal the CDC put it out that in 2021, 42% of the children born in America were born out of wedlock. Wow. Last year. Yeah. Wow. So uh, fact checkers, I don't have that information in front of me. I think I read it in a tweet. So if I'm off on that, please, please contact me. We'll get that corrected. But uh, it's kind of believable. <laughs> yeah. You know, especially just newer disciples coming into our church. About 40% of them, they ain't married. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're playing house, quote mm-hmm. unquote. You uh, know what? I don't mean that to be insulting, no. but I don't know how else to say it, right? <laughs> you're right. Oh, you're right. What I keep thinking is, as you're saying all of this, in um, it's in Matthew 19 where Jesus says that the only lawful reason for divorce is adultery. And the response to that is, well, what's the point of getting married then? And Jesus doesn't even bat an eyelash. He just says, well, not everyone needs to. You know, some people are supposed to be eunuchs. And then the very next thing he does yeah. is bless the children. Mm. Wow. So he, in blessing the children, is kind of stating without saying anything, this is the reason for that. These children. Oh, my God. Wow, you've blown my mind. <laughs> mm. Jesus, Matthew nineteen. Yeah, mm, there's something there. Wow. Well, Jesus endured. You know, they questioned him about Mo- what Moses said the the certificate of divorce. Mm-hmm. And you know, he didn't really argue with him, but he said it wasn't Moses' choice. He did it because your hearts were so hard. Yeah, and. Probably Moses did it to save his own sanity. You know, and then you mentioned some of the complications he had with Zipporah, then the Ethiopian wife and all of that. You know, so Moses Moses stuck it out in his Mm. marriages. (laughs) You know, and you look at Adam and Eve, they probably, that marriage shouldn't have lasted. Getting kicked out of their beautiful home and then losing a son, two sons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but they stuck it out. So there is something for people that have that attitude. We're sticking it out, but then sometimes, not necessarily a choice, sometimes it's unavoidable, right? But, but Jesus gave him an answer, and he's, he, he endorsed lawful divorce for adultery. And I want to ask you a question, just based upon biblical observation. There really is no divorce mentioned in the Bible, except one. Mm-hmm. And you think about it, with all the concubines and... and all the crazy things that happen, there is not one actual divorce mentioned in the Bible. Yeah. 
uh, I, you could make a case for Hosea, but that's not really like detailed, you know, with a divorce. It's not really there. Right. The only divorce you really see is in uh, Jeremiah. He brings it up. God divorced Israel. Not separated. It says the D word, divorced Israel, and repeats it like thrice. <laughs> King James. <Yes. laughs> so do you think that's why Jesus endorsed a lawful divorce for adultery? Because that's the reason God divorced Israel, according to Scripture. Yeah. Yeah, I think You don't have so. to. You can fight with me on that. No, I, I think you're <laughs> right. I think... I think God understands the agony of adultery because he experienced it. That makes sense to me. It's the shredding of a flesh, you know, because at first it was two became one, but adultery means that one that was originally two, but now one has become three and sometimes more than three, depending on the number of adultery. So it's shredding. It's excruciating. And you're right. In Jeremiah, God says that though he asked Israel to come home, she wouldn't. And he became almost a laughing stock. And so he gave her a bill of divorce. Mm. So you're right, I think. I think God's first desire is reconciliation because he tried that, but that's not always possible. And so God allows divorce as the alternative manner to heal wounds. Amen. Yep, Hmm. that's there. God understands the agony of adultery. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's just real talk. It's in the church, real issues for real people. Yes. I think that statement's really going to help somebody listening to this. Okay, let's go back to Moses and the certificate of divorce. He says Moses did it not because he wanted to, not because he liked it, not because it was something he truly believed in, but he did it because their hard their hearts were are really hard. That's the reason for the divorce. The hearts of the people were so hard, but God allowed it. Some would even say maybe God perhaps winked at that or something. I don't know. But it's as if Jesus is saying God at certain times and certain places gave his servants the power to sanctify a marriage and also to loose a marriage. And I, I don't want to get into this, but I have, in some of my uh, Healthy Relationships episodes, have talked about this and posed the question, when is a marriage sanctified? Mm-hmm. When is it sanctified? When is it registered in heaven? You become heirs of salvation together, as Peter said. Some say uh, when the, the marriage is consummated. Some say when the vows happen. In my opinion, it's you're married when the man of God says you're married. Mm. <laughs> that's my idea. When he puts his stamp of blessing on it, that's when God says, all right, I'm with you on that. And so with that, I think God gives discretion for certain pastors, even in a divorce and remarriage situation. And, you know, Jesus said, I give you power to bind and loose. You know what that is? It's, it's marriage language. Mm. And of course, he's talking about power over demons. But even then, I, I think whatever you bind in heaven is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose mm-hmm. is loosed in heaven. And my question for you is, a lot of people sometimes are looking at a situation, a bad situation in a family, and they're just making all kinds of uh, silent but, but you know, just deadly thoughts about a family and their situation. And do you think people just need to trust a pastor in those situations? Because chances are the pastor's going to know things that they don't. Yeah. So just, you think people should trust the pastor when it comes to a, to a hard situation with a separation, a divorce, an adultery, something like that. Just trust your pastor in it, right? 
Yeah, do you think? absolutely. Trust your pastor. And I, I agree that the people in the body don't always know what's going on, you know, and it's none of their business to know. I mean, my family was directly affected by divorce. I talked about it in that side notes episode, but my dad was actually sure. the pastor of a church and for lack of a better term, ran off with a woman. And we heard all kinds of rumors about our family that were not even true, and it wasn't even possible for them to be true. And all kinds of people spoke ill of my mother, who was a righteous woman, who did everything in her power to keep that marriage together and was willing to forgive the transgression. She was willing to forgive it and to let it go. But people spoke ill of her because they didn't know. They didn't know what was going on behind closed doors. And, you know, people's public faces, in, even in the church, are not always their private faces. And you cannot, you cannot judge the inner workings of a family by what you see in public. Because we always wear our best face <laughs> when we're out and about dealing with other people. We can't always know what's going on. And if your pastor sees a problem, if you love your pastor and you trust your pastor and you respect your pastor and you see your pastor as a man of God— Love, trust, and respect that he's going to intervene when intervention is needed. And because my dad was a pastor and left, we had a bishop over the situation, and he took care of things, and he helped us through that time, and he helped correct some of the false stuff going around. But if we hadn't had his voice in in our lives during that time, I don't know what we would have done. We needed him desperately. And in the same way, you would want your pastor to be the only voice speaking into your life if you were going through it. Allow that to be what happens for someone else going through a tragedy. Your voice doesn't need to be heard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard enough to make disciples as it is. It's hard yeah. enough to keep people in church. And is it worth uh, getting all bent out of shape over somebody else's divorce? I, I don't think so. Mm-mm. And I learned all of this really when I was in Bible college. There was just it became a big topic of discussion among students. And there were situations going on, you know, even in my home church. And I, I got the revelation of it in reading this when I was about 20, 21, that, you know, God gives power to, the, to a pastor, mm-hmm. to a spiritual authority to make judgment calls. And the Lord trusts his word in, in the binding of loosing as he did for Moses. And I think Jesus has, you know, done the same thing and. In, in a time when divorce is becoming a part of our culture and everybody hates it. I've never mm-hmm. met a girl that says, oh, I love having a divorce on my record. Oh, my God, it was so wonderful. It's so awesome. Yeah. You know, no, it's everybody hates it, you know, even, even though if, if it weren't for the option of divorce, they would have been killed or something, you know. That's mm-hmm. painting the worst-case scenario. Well, good. Well, that, that's a great episode that I... I don't think I want to say that people are just going to love and enjoy. It's, it's sure, it's pain. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pain, but it, at the end of it all is just a, a beautiful, mm-hmm. beautiful story. And I think it's going to give a lot of hope to people that yes. you know are going through that. So it's it definitely answers a lot of questions and something that uh, people can really cling to. Absolutely. Amen. So you also had the cribs on your show. Shout out to the Cribs. Yes. A great podcast on sustaining life. They've been guests here with me as well. And uh, you wanted to talk about dating and love and marriage with them. (laughs) And they had some uh, great insight into all of that. Something uh, that I think 
uh, people that are, you you know, you're coming out of your teen years, you're entering into your adult years, and, you know, uh, marriage is something you want to do, I'd go and listen to that episode. Um, they, I, I'm just of the th- theory, dating is the foundation of the family. It, it is. You date well, you're setting yourself up to have a great family someday, and they, they uh, talk about their dating years and marriage years and, and really get raw about some of the things they went through, but you brought up something about something that is becoming a, it's just a part of the whole like dating toxic wasteland. (laughs) And that is the sliding into the DMs approach. (laughs) And I, you're not the only person that's talked about it. I hear people talking about it a lot, sliding into DMs. And what that is, is basically a guy Somehow will say, "Hey, I really uh, like your cat," or something, <laughs> and sort of slides in there, and it's really like, "Hey, I'd like to get to know you," but doesn't know how to say it. Mm-hmm. And it's not just to one girl; it's usually about fifty other girls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, you shared a big secret that I don't. I, I think a lot of girls would be upset that they, knowing that you told it, and that <laughs> secret is. Uh, true or false, do girls talk to each other about who's sliding into their DMs? Is that a true or false statement? It is a true statement. All right. Complete with screenshots. (laughs) Oh! (laughs) All right. All right. Okay. So just to capture a little bit of that episode, and I don't really know how else to say this, but I think... Dating is hard. It's troubling. It, mm-hmm. it just is for for uh, for me. It was all of that. With God's help, you can do it. But I think what I'm asking you is for just a feminine perspective. You know, that's the way of the world. The sliding into the DMs and to like do s- not just like serial dating, but like try to date like as many girls as you can all at the same time. Yeah. Because if you're looking for the one, should you be dating just one? Do you think that's how God would prefer it, how God works? I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah, I think, right. I think it's fair to say that you're going to have much more success if your focus is on one person because then you can actually get to know them, and if you can get to know them, you can learn how to win them. Um, but when your focus is on a lot of people, it doesn't tend to go well. Yeah, well, I don't think anybody would feel special No, that way a girl... Yeah. Knowing that uh, he's talking to like, I loved what girls. Sister G said on that. Oh well, tell us what did she say? Yeah, she said women want to feel captivating. They want to sp- feel special, and they want to feel like enough. And if a woman knows that a man talking to her is talking to fifteen other girls as well, she doesn't feel like any one of those things. That is the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, I've I've talked about this. I met. Uh, Sister G in July of 2008. January to to July, I dated everything I could. (laughs) And (laughs) it was a disaster for me, for them. And I tried the sliding into, of course, there really wasn't DMs back then. (laughs) Mostly texting phone calls. (laughs) And it didn't work. And I... Mm -hmm. I realize one girl is all you need, and if you will focus on one, 
you know, God is one, a spouse to one, yep. the bride of Christ. <laughs> you know, you go with that approach. That's generally how it works. All right. Well, there you go from from a lady's perspective and talks about it on her podcast episode. Go check it out. Uh, I see. Uh, lastly, this is going to be fun. You've uh, brought some <laughs> of your art and creativity of your <laughs> Wicked or Wise characters to your IG reels. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, that's been fun to do. <laughs> okay. All right. You 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 did the the Esther and the Scepter and you did the the whole rain thing. Yeah. Uh, many will she she was easy to kill. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I can't help I watched that show with Sister G and I don't know how, but I loved it. Mm. And and Sister Rachel, there's times I listen to your show and I'm like, "Why do I like this?" I'm a dude, and it's girls laughing and talking about <laughs> girl stuff. I don't understand it, but it's um, funny. And there's times I even wonder, why do girls listen to my show? Because it's all about dudes. It's headbanging music. I eat. I, I drink coffee when I talk, and I use a lot of ridicule and things that really a lot of girls don't like. But I, I don't know. Maybe guys like a girl's perspective, girls like a guy's perspective, whatever. But mm -hmm. what were you trying to say in that reel? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, Esther got really hard that to kill at the end. <laughs> oh man, that that clip—that yeah, audio clip was so just—it's such a statement audio clip. And when I heard it, I was like immediately picturing Esther looking up from that moment where the scepters held out to her, because that's how she probably would have felt in that moment. Because in that moment. There's a surge of victory that takes place just then because she realizes she still has the favor of the king. And so, yeah, it just made sense to make the Instagram reel about her <laughs> looking up from the scepter with a grin on her face like, yep, that's right. <laughs> you can't kill me. <laughs> hey, you know, it's funny, but uh, that's a message. Mm. That's a message. Awesome. You also did, uh, you had uh, Jezebel getting pushed out of the window Whew. <laughs> you know and whoever that was who i don't know if you can disclose who was that guy that was my brother was thomas oh thomas okay yeah thomas from well, the i know Zipporah his voice episode. he's been on your show yes Shout out to thomas it was awesome <laughs> yes we were in my mom's basement um we were there for the holidays and there were pillars in her basement and i was like oh this is gonna be great we're gonna pretend it's the window we're gonna do that pride goes before a fall kind of audio <laughs> and Jebe mm. jezebel's just talking about how great she is and the unit comes up behind her and pushes her out <laughs> interesting well you know a lot of people have guys and girls both have we all have jezebels in our life mm -hmm. you know we feel victorious and slating and defeating falsehoods in our life but it seems like that one lady that took over whoever the spirit of jezebel comes up on us but in the very end even the weakest of men or whoever can toss her out eventually that's right, right? Yep. amen and then uh you did a pretty <laughs> a funny one with a with a statue of david bathsheba <laughs> sees david <laughs> I'm having like, too oh much fun God. <laughs> Yeah. Well, uh, it just goes to show that sin can come out of nowhere. Yes. Creep up on you. Sure can. So, yes. You know, it's amazing you, how much, if you're not careful, humor can really 
make you just feel like people are just trying to entertain you, but really mm-hmm. humor can communicate a message. It, humor opens the soul. Yes. So Billy Cole said, he, he said, before I preach a hard subject, I make people laugh. Mm. And I can get my point across. So uh, I thought they were really good. And it's on um, uh, Instagram, Wicked or Wise, right? Yes, yes, at Wicked or Wise. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Very, very cool. All right. Thank you. Sister Rachel, thank you so much for coming on. Great, said great stuff. I, I appreciate it. Great episodes. Congratulations on another great season of Wicked or Wise and your new show. Uh, side notes with Rachel. Great stuff. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I always appreciate every chance we get to talk Bible. I, I love to hear your insight and your thoughts on things. So I'm very grateful. Thank you. Oh, likewise. Podcasting is the future. Mm-hmm. And I wish you continued blessings in your future in it. All right, everybody. Uh, head on over to Wicked or Wise on your podcast app. Also, side notes with Rachel. And while you're doing that, keep it in your background. Head over to wickedorwise.com and purchase some very nice merch. Thank you for listening. God bless you. Mm-hmm.